pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. to the book of Leviticus, yes. chapter 16. We've got a lot of reading to do today. Yes. Today is a very special day on the Jewish calendar. I'm not going to tell you what it is right now, but I will before this service is over. In Leviticus 16, starting with verse 2, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain. Now Aaron was the high priest of Israel, the first high priest of Israel. Uh, not to enter behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. That atonement cover is also known as the mercy seat. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azael. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat, chosen by Lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord, when it is sent away to Azael in the wilderness. The people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Aaron, the high priest, will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord, after he has slaughtered the bull as a sin offering. He will fill an incense burner with burning coals from the altar that stands before the Lord, and then he will take two handfuls of fragrant powder incense and will carry the burner and the incense behind the inner curtain. There in the Lord's presence, he will put the incense on the burning coals so that a cloud of incense will rise over the ark's cover, the place of atonement, that rests on the ark of the covenant. If he follows these instructions, he will not die. Then he must take some of the blood of the bull, dip his finger in it, and sprinkle it on the east side of the atonement cover. He must sprinkle blood seven times with his finger in front of the atonement cover, the mercy seat. Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. 
There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place, and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the, the, uh, the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. No one else is allowed inside the tabernacle when Aaron enters it for the purification ceremony in the most holy place. No one may enter until he comes out again after purifying himself, his family, and all the congregation of Israel, making them right with the Lord. And then Aaron will come out to purify the altar that stands before the Lord. He will do this by taking some of the blood from the bull and the goat and putting it on each of the horns of the altar. Then he must sprinkle the blood with his fingers seven times over the altar. In this way, he will cleanse it from Israel's defilement and make it holy. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man especially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, he will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And when Aaron goes back into the tabernacle, he must take off the linen garments he was wearing when he entered the most holy place, and he must leave the garments there. And then he must bathe himself with water in a sacred place, put on his regular garments, and go out to sacrifice a burnt offering for himself and a burnt offering for the people. And through this process, he will purify himself and the people, making them right with the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's a lot of reading. I don't expect you to remember all of it, but I'm going to highlight some of it as we go through the message today. But I want to talk to you today about the Day of Atonement. That's what this was talking about here is the Day of Atonement which actually begins with the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which I believe with all my heart is associated with the rapture of the church. Now, the Feast of Trumpets in traditional Judaism is known as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. It's the most solemn and holy day on the Jewish calendar. And it's also referred to by the Jews as a day of trumpets or the day of remembrance. So there's something to remember on this day. And there's obviously going to be some blowing of trumpets. And actually, these trumpets are shofars. But Rosh Hashanah is, an, is the, the Jewish New Year. And according to the tradition, it celebrates the day that the Lord created man, mankind. In other words, it's, it's uh, celebrating when the Lord created man in his own image and likeness. It is the anniversary of that date, Rosh Hashanah. And so from the start of the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, to the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, there is exactly 10 days. And these 10 days are called the 10 Days of Awe, A-W-E. I think it's where we get our word awesome. You know, our God is awesome. So we should stand in awe of him. Amen. And so uh, awe is a feeling of the reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. 
That's the definition of all. So this is how we should look upon God Almighty every day, not just 10 days a year, but we should look at him like this every day, rever reverentially with fear and wonder. And the reason for this is because according to the rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, the teachers of Israel, Jewish people believe and also understand that on Yom Kippur, the day of judgment, God judges the or the day of atonement, God judges the earth. Atonement is when reparation or payment is made for transgression and sin. So in a Jewish uh, religious context, it's an annual ceremony of confession and atonement for their sins, the people of Israel. And since the wages or the payment of sin is death, the reparation or the payment, the atonement has to be the death of an innocent animal, but it all points to the eventual, eventual death of Jesus Christ. All of these ceremonies that the Jewish people celebrated in the Old Testament, every one of them pointed to Jesus Christ and some aspect of his character or his ministry. Everything we read this morning in the scriptures in Leviticus pointed to Jesus Christ. I know it was talking about animals and the blood of animals and the sacrifices and the high priest, but all of those things have something to do with Jesus Christ and they point to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his blood. And he's become the high priest. So all of these things are just types and shadows. Yeah. And they point to Jesus Christ. And it's God trying to get the people of Israel in the Old Testament on the right track and point them to the Savior that would one day come on the scene. Now for the Christian, it's a one-time reconciliation between God and mankind through Jesus Christ. With the Israelites, it was constant sacrifices every day. But the sacrifice for sin, for atonement, was only once a year. And that time of year, it was up to the high priest and him only to make those sacrifices. Nobody else could make those sacrifices. Nobody else was allowed into the most holy place. The, the average regular priest, the common priest, he could minister in the courtyard and he could even minister in the holy place but never in the most holy place. That was reserved for the high priest, and that was only once a year for him to go in there. If he went in there uh, in official capacity, any other time he would be struck dead. If his sacrifice was, mm, this is good enough, he'd be struck dead. If he wasn't right, he'd be struck dead. As a matter of fact, on that day of atonement, he, he would minister with those linen, the linen tunic, the linen miter and the linen sash, but when he went into the most holy place to make that sacrifice for atonement, he would take those clothes off, bathe himself, and he would put all his highly priest, high priestly regalia on. And I mean, he was dressed to the hilt, gold and jewels and all kinds of beautiful colors and embroideries and everything was on his uh, robe and that. So he was really decked out. But they would tie a rope around his waist. And this is based on tradition. I don't see it in the Bible. It's based on rabbinical uh, tradition. And he would go into the most holy place. And if he wasn't right and was struck dead, they would have to drag him out with the rope because nobody could go in there and get him. They'd be struck dead. 
I mean, we're talking about the dwelling place of God. We're talking about where God dwells with man on earth. And it is a holy, holy place. I can't even describe the holiness of God. But he demands holiness because he's holy. And he can demand that if he wants because he owns it all. This is his world. Yes. We're his creation. We belong to him. Yes. So he can, if he wants us to be holy, he can demand holiness. Yes. But he knows we can't be holy. And he knows we'll sin and we'll transgress and we'll miss the mark. And so out of his goodness and mercy and grace, he develops a sacrifice system. So that somebody could die in our place, an innocent animal. Mm -hmm. And again, it all points to the ultimate sacrifice that will come one day. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But all these things are pointing to that. All these feasts and all these celebrations point to Jesus Christ or some aspect of his character or ministry. But uh, for the Christian, like I said, it's a one-time reconciliation between God and mankind through Jesus Christ. The reparation or the payment for sin, uh, for our sin, required the death of God's only son, just like it required the death of those animals for the Israelites. But God's son is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. And, and I, I know I say that a lot, but we have to understand that in God's mind, his son was slain before he ever even created us. Because he knew what the future held for us. He knew what Adam and Eve was going to do. He knew what we were going to do. He knew that we could never live up to his perfect standard. And he could demand a perfect standard because he's a perfect God. And he made us. And he owns everything. He can demand anything he wants. But he knew that we couldn't live up to that. So he, he allowed us to offer an innocent animal in our place. So on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the blood of a bull and a goat was spilled or sacrificed. The bull was to atone for the high priest's sin, and the goat was to atone for Israel's sin. The blood of those sacrifices were brought into the Holy of Holies by the high priest of Israel for the atonement of Israel's sins. So the Jewish people understood that after the ten days of awe, the time between the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel was sacrificed that bull for himself and a goat for them, and he would bring that blood into the most holy place and present it to God. Now, this was done in Moses' tabernacle, which was a tent in the wilderness, a temporary dwelling place for God. And then later in the temple, which, which is a more permanent structure that David's son Solomon built. David wanted to build it, but God said, you got too much blood on your hands, too much blood on your life. So in the back of the tabernacle and then later in the back of the temple, there was this room separated by a curtain that was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. In other words, there was no holier place in the universe. That's why they called the most holy place. And in this room was housed the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the most holy and valuable piece of furniture in the universe. Men have been searching for the Ark of the Covenant for centuries. And, you know, we have the movies on it, uh, you know, with Harrison Ford and the German army. The Nazis were looking for the Ark and he found it. And you know how the movie goes. 
But anyway, that was fiction. Nobody's going to find the Ark of the Covenant here because it's been transferred to heaven and it's in the heavenly holy of holies right now. So let me give you now the New Testament account of what we've been talking about and what we've read so far concerning the tabernacle and the temple. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Again, I'm going to read in the New Living Translation. It says that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on a table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priests ever entered the most holy place, and once a year, only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people, uh, or for the, and the sins, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented, the system of sacrifice, were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time, for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offered are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established, or a better covenant. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. That's the place of the, tab or the, of the Ark of the Covenant right now. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. See, he's become a high priest, and his duties are identical to the high priests of the Old Testament, or the high priests of the Old Testament, except that the, the blood he brought in to the heavenly holy of holies was his own. So under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, paddywhack, could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. I emphasize that heifer because uh, one of the 
the things that was intricate in the in the worship and the sacrifice and the Day of Atonement was the ashes of a red heifer. A red heifer, not just a regular cow or not just, uh, you know, a Jersey cow, black and white spotted. It had to be a purebred red heifer. They would sacrifice that animal and then they would take the ashes and they would use it to sanctify the temple and, and make the worship uh, experience acceptable to God. And uh, that's the only thing that this Temple Mount, the third temple that Israel's rebuilding right now, that's the only thing that they lack to uh, finish gathering everything they need so that they can begin Old Testament worship again. They needed the ashes of a red heifer. And those uh, red heifers have been shipped to Israel and they're there right now. Amen. So they're ready to begin Old Testament sacrifice. There's some, some things have to come in play before that, but it's necessary because that's the temple that the Antichrist is gonna stand up and declare himself to be God. And that's the temple that he's gonna desecrate and uh, cause it to be desolate. But anyway, that's just a free tidbit I threw in there. But in that room called the Holy of Holies, as we already know, the Ark of the Covenant stood. And unlike the holy place that was adjacent to the most holy place, there were three pieces of furniture in there, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony, was a rectangular box overlaid with pure gold, made from acacia wood, but then overlaid with pure gold. And the Ark contained the golden pot of manna, which is, was a reminder to Israel of God's provision in the wilderness, but it also pointed to manna was the bread that came down from heaven, and it also pointed to Jesus Christ, the true bread that will come down from heaven. And then the uh, Aaron's rod that budded was to prove that Aaron was the chosen high priest of God, but it also showed the resurrection power of God that would raise Jesus from the dead. Because the rod that budded, that was Aaron's staff. And when the people were objecting against Aaron's leadership and wanted to choose their own leader, God says, get all your leaders, tell them to bring their staffs, and then throw them on the ground. And when, when they threw them on the ground, Aaron's staff budded and sprouted leaves. And he said, that's my chosen leader. Any questions? And so that's, that's what the, the rod and butter reminds us of. And then there was the stone tablets of the law. But I want to insert this part. It was the stone tablets of the broken law. The laws that Israel broke. It was a reminder in there of God's perfection and his demand for purity and holiness and his demand for perfection through the Ten Commandments. Well, nobody could live up to them, so they were broken laws. So the cover, or the mercy seat, or the cover that the mercy seat was attached to was pure, solid gold. It wasn't wood overlaid, it was pure, solid gold. And it was called the mercy seat or the seat of propitiation. And at either end of the cover were the two cherubs of solid gold uh, that had their wings outstretched over the mercy seat, so they met in the middle, so the mercy seat was completely overshadowed by the cherubim's wings. 
And they were created in a certain way that they called a beaten work. Now, I don't know exactly how, how it goes, but I think they were, they take a bob of gold and they beat it into position. You know, they beat it into this cherubim, this work of art. And they probably do some carving in it and stuff like that. But it required the ability and dedication of a highly anointed, highly skilled craftsman. And then the Shekinah glory, that's the very presence of God himself, appeared as a bright cloud between, and between the angels and underneath the angels' wings, right on top of the mercy seat. And that's probably what made it the most holy place in the universe because God sat there. God dwelled there. And nobody could approach God at that time. Only the high priest, only once a year, only under the strictest regulations and the strictest ceremony, the sacrifice of the bull, the sprinkling of the blood, and he would make himself uh, acceptable to God for the purpose of making the sacrifice for Israel. But it was a risky thing for him to go into the presence of God like that. He had to make sure all his little ducks was in order or he wouldn't make it. He would be struck dead. But once a year, and once a year only on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood of a bull for his sins and the blood of the goat for Israel's sins and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Uh, our Bible says sprinkle, but the rabbinical or the Torah, the Jew, uh, Jewish Bible says poured. So either way, it, it works for me. But when the Lord saw the blood, he would forgive Israel's sins for a year. Or actually atone for them or cover them for a year. And, uh, but remember the Ten Commandments were, was in the ark. So that's what he was forgiving them for. That's what the blood was covering. Was their inability to keep the law. It was covering the broken law. So the blood represented the reparation or the payment for Israel's sins. And it stopped God's hand from judging them. And imposing the penalty on them for sin. Now the blood of those sacrifices had to be applied to the mercy seat. If it wasn't, then God would look down and instead of seeing the reparation or the payment, the wages for sin, instead of seeing the blood, he would see the broken law. And he would be forced to judge Israel. And then they would have to pay the reparation for sin, which was death. So they would have to die for that sin. So God was merciful, allowing them to have an animal die in their place. But what he was doing is pointing to the substitutionary death of his son. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now God said in Leviticus 17.11, and this is important, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, the mercy seat, to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So it's the blood by it's the blood and by reason of the life that's in it that makes it an atonement for the soul. No blood, no life. That's physical and spiritual. Without blood in your physical body, no life. Without blood, the blood of Jesus, no spiritual life. So the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit is in the blood. So uh, 
these 10 days that led up to uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, called the 10 Days of Awe, uh, they knew that they had to play a part in the forgiveness of their sins. And that part was they had to reflect on their sin. They had to uh, humble themselves, repent for their sins, and then approach the Day of Atonement in that attitude and frame of mind. And that, and that was the purpose of the 10 days of all leading up to the Day of Atonement. Now in the Torah, the Jewish Bible, the Lord gave Israel instructions that before the Day of Atonement, they would all have to humble themselves and repent. Mm -hmm. If they didn't, the Lord said that soul would be cut off. And that's why Leviticus 17.11 is so important because uh, he said it makes an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So man is required to participate in the Day of Atonement by humbling himself and repenting of his sins and reflecting on them. And, and what it does is it causes man to recognize his sin and his transgression by bowing before God, asking forgiveness. Is this working? So when we see the sacrifice of those innocent animals and the blood that was shed for our sins which was a type of the future sacrifice that Christ was going to make, then it causes us to look at how horrendous and how hideous and how terrible sin is and the cost for sin. Sin was so hideous and horrible and, and terrible that it cost the innocent lives of millions, literally millions of innocent animals, and then it ultimately uh, led to the... the Reparation or the payment of sin through the life of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. So that's what we reflect on. Ten days of all. Ten days of uh, humbling ourselves and repenting and realizing how horrific sin is. It's, yeah. you know, sin is just a word today. Sin doesn't mean anything to people nowadays. They, you know, uh, this is a day of acceptance. You know, you have to accept me the way I am. You have to accept my sin. You have to accept. I, I mean, I don't have sin. I, I'm not in sin. I have a problem. You have to be understanding of that problem. Baloney. Right. The word doesn't change. Right. Sin is sin. Yes. And it's dark and it's black. Yes. And it cost God his only son's life. Yes, it, did. it causes blood to be spilled. Yes. Sin yes. needs to be recognized as sin. Yes. And that's what these 10 days of all between uh, the Feast of Trumpets and, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's what those 10 days are for. Yes. Time for you to realize how serious your sin is. Yes. And what it did to God and what it did to His Son. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's not a game. Matter of fact, Jesus came down here. Jesus, the Word, came from heaven and dwelt among us. He took on sinful flesh and he lived with us with sinful flesh, but he kept it under control, and he never sinned. If he did, we'd all be dead. That's right. If his sacrifice wasn't accepted, we would have to pay reparations for that sin. Amen. So the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, and the ten days of all leading up to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, prepares us to receive the forgiveness for our sins, by fasting, 
humbling ourselves and repenting for God before God. Yeah. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is really a reminder that our Creator is going to reveal Himself to us and to the world, and He's going to judge the world for sin. Now, look at Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 29. This is in the NABRE version, and don't ask me to tell you what it means, I don't remember. I think it's New American something. New, New American Bible Revised Edition. Thank you, Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month, you will have a Sabbath rest with trumpet blast as a reminder of declared holy day. So these trumpets are going to blow and they're to remind us of something. Verse 25 says, You shall do no heavy work and you shall offer an oblation to the Lord the day of atonement. The Lord said to Moses, Now the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. You will have a declared holy day. You shall humble yourselves and offer an oblation to the Lord. On this day you should not do any work because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not humble themselves on this day shall be cut off from the people. That's the soul that will be cut off. The one that fails to humble themselves and repent. So the Day of Atonement, the forgiveness of sin, is not an automatic thing. God said the blowing of the trumpets are to remind us of something. Yes. Here's what it is. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 through 20, it tells us what we're to be reminded of. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. It was smoke covered. Mount Sinai. The mountain that Moses received the Ten Commandments in. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount, the whole mountain, quaked greatly. It was in a perpetual shaking or perpetual earthquake the whole time that he was upon it. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded, long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Now this is important because the trumpet kept getting louder and louder and louder, and Moses spoke with God, and God answered him by a voice. In other words, it wasn't a still small voice in the spirit. He didn't speak to his spirit. He spoke to him with his voice, and it was like thunder. Yes. The children of Israel, he said, don't even let them come close to the mountain. If anything touches the foot of the mountain, they'll be struck dead. Any cattle, any, nothing, nothing. Don't even come close. And the children of Israel were terrified. And then verse 20 says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the mount, to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Remember that. The Lord came down and Moses went up. This is a type and shadow of the return of Jesus to take his church back to heaven. This is a type and shadow of the rapture of the church. It's an exact picture of the rapture uh, that's going to occur 
during the Feast of Trumpets. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 8 through 18 says, For the Lord himself shall descend or come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And as he's descending, as he's coming down, the trump is blowing, and it's getting louder and louder and louder as it comes down and gets closer to the earth. But he's not touching down. He's gonna, we're going to meet him in the air. He says, and the dead in Christ shall rise, go up first, and then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. These words are supposed to be comforting to yes, us. They They're not supposed to cause fear to come upon us. Uh-huh. This is something that comforts us. Yeah. Why is it comfort us? Because right after that, the world is going to be tri- plunged into seven years of tribulation. The last three and a half being great tribulation, such as the world has never seen before, nor shall ever see again. It's going to be a terrible time on this yeah. earth. Yeah. So I'm comforted knowing that I'm. he's coming down and I'm going up. I'm not going to be here for that. But just as God came down on Mount Sinai and Moses went up to meet him, so shall the Lord come down from heaven and we shall rise up to meet him in the rapture. The trumpet kept growing louder and louder and louder until it reaches this deafening climax like a crescendo. And then God came down with great power and glory shook the mountain. So when we hear the trump of God, Jesus is coming down with great power and glory, and we're going up, and God is going to judge the world, because that's what happens on the Day of Atonement. Our sins get forgiven, we go to heaven, and God judges the world. Yes, amen. So the Jews celebrate the Feast of Trumpets to remind themselves that the Creator is going to reveal Himself and then judge the world. But He's going to reveal Himself in a spectacular way because that's what He did on Mount Sinai. And so He revealed Himself in a spectacular way. He came down, the mountain was on fire, smoke was engulfing the mountain, the mountain was shaking all over the place. That's pretty spectacular. So our God is going to come down in great power and glory. And he's going to rapture us because we're going to go up. So we should be living with this expectation. This expectation should be in our heart. This 10 days of all is a time to adjust some things. It's a time for us to humble ourselves and repent and reflect on the horrificness and how horrendous sin is and what it costs God to pay for that sin or to give reparation for that sin, we should be reflecting on those things and we should be looking forward to the return of Christ in the air to take the church back to heaven with him. That should be an expectation of ours. So Jesus is going to rapture his church, whether you believe it or agree with it or disagree with it, it doesn't make any difference. It's going to happen. It's imminent. And it's going to be during the Feast of Trumpets, and that's what we're to be reminded of. Yes, yes. it is. So why am I preaching about this today? I'll be honest with you, I had another message prepared. 
uh, I was going to preach on the uh, ten virgins. And the Lord said, no, I want you to preach on this. And the time that I started researching it and studying it, I didn't realize what I'm about to tell you. But I'm preaching on this today because Rosh Hashanah, the day of remembrance, the day of the blowing of trumpets that celebrates the Jewish New Year, is a two-day celebration that begins at sundown tonight. And it ends at sundown on September 27th, which is this coming Tuesday. So tonight begins the 10 days of all. Which leads up to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest, most solemn, important day of the year for the Jews and should be for us because we're spiritual Jews. And even though we don't celebrate like they do, there's a meaning behind what they celebrate. And we're to glean from that and we're to celebrate with them in, with a New Testament attitude. They're looking for Jesus. We already seen him. So, the Day of Atonement begins at sundown, Tuesday, October 4th, and ends Wednesday evening, October 5th, uh, the last of the 10 days of humbling and repentance that began with Rosh Hashanah. So, it's, it's exactly 10 days from, from tonight to October 5th, it's 10 days, the 10 days of all. So, Yom Kippur... The Day of Atonement commemorates and reminds us of the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai after seeking God's divine forgiveness for the Israelites who sinned against him by worshiping that idol calf. Yeah. You remember when he was up in the mountain getting the, the first Ten Commandments? How many know there was two sets of Ten Commandments? Yeah. He's up there getting the first set of Ten Commandments, and Israel is down in the valley being led by Aaron, preparing a golden calf. And that represents Baal worship. Mm -hmm. And if you were here Wednesday night, you've seen modern day Baal worship right under our noses being performed right here on the earth. And I don't know if I told you this Wednesday, but we would, most people in this country wouldn't tolerate a bull like that. I mean, we see that and say, Hey, something's wrong here. But we've got what they call the Arch of Baal. It's a stone arch representing the entrance into the, uh, the groves of, of uh, the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth in the Old Testament. And so we have the Arch of Baal in several key, certain colored cities. Certain colored cities. And they would have that in... Uh, well, it's certain color cities. I can't mention their names. And that represents Baal worship. But anyway, I don't think it can't happen today because it does. Because we're thinking, man, I would have never made a golden calf. Yes, you would have. And you would have bowed at it too. Because peer pressure is pretty tough. Matter of fact, peer pressure is what's going to cause most good Christian people to take the mark of the beast. A moment of peer pressure compared to an eternity of death. 
So, let me wrap this up. Speaking of the end times, and I believe the rapture of the church, uh, the Lord was talking about it in Matthew 24, 36. He said, I'm trying to find my place. Says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. A lot of people think this is talking about his second coming. And it could be for the Jews. But for us, I believe it's talking about the rapture of the church. That's the next time we're going to see Jesus. The Jews ain't going to see him until he comes a second for his second return. At the end of the uh, tribulation period. But the reason I believe he's referring to the rapture of the church is because the rapture is signless. I told you this before. There's no signs that point to the rapture. No indication of the time or even the season of the rapture. But we have over 70 signs pointing to the second coming that the Jews are looking forward to. But once the rapture occurs, we will be able to determine the day and the hour of his second coming because the rapture ends the church age and it starts the seven years of Old Testament time called the tribulation period. And that's, that starts, and once that starts, once the rapture of the church, then we have a very accurate timeline to the second coming of Christ. We can lay it out, play by play, all the way to the second coming of, of Christ. Because when the rapture occurs and we go up, and Israel gets, in, or the world gets plunged into the tribulation, then uh, that time clock, that prophetic time clock starts up again. And that seven years is Old Testament time that God owed Israel. It's a long story. We don't have time to get into it. But that's why they're going to have Old Testament temple worship. It's going to be just like in the Old Testament. But we'd be able to lay it out because of Daniel's prophecy of the 70th week, his 70th week. So what do we need to walk away with today? We need to walk away with the expectation that Jesus is going to come back and he's coming back soon. Yes, he is. And we're going to join him in the air. Hallelujah. And so we should join with our Jewish brothers and sisters in this celebration of the 10 days of all, and we should do some reflection, and we should do some humbling, and we should do some repentance, and prepare with them for the Day of Atonement. And for us, it's just a, it's a reminder. For them, they're still looking for it. And this is the way we should be living until he returns and raptures the church. And this should be a time of fasting and reflection. Mm -hmm. Now, I told Pastor Ed this morning I was going to fast from liver and onions. <laughs> but she said that won't work because I hate liver and onions. I said, well, what are you going to fast from? She said, I'll tell you when you tell me what you're going to fast from. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to fast from Starbucks coffee. That is a true sacrifice for me. I don't know if you realize it or not, but I drink a lot of Starbucks coffee. So that's going to be my fast. Uh, some, you know, the Jews probably fast, total fast. No food, no water, no, or no food and no uh, pleasurable things at all. 
they probably drink water, maybe juice or something to sustain them. You can't go without water 10 days, but you can go without food. And then other people do a Daniel fast or a partial fast or, you know, just fast from something that you enjoy. And God will accept that as a sacrifice. It's not going to change God, but it might change you. So I'm going to fast from Starbucks. And every time I think about that craving I have for Starbucks coffee, because I had some this morning, I still got some on my desk I have to finish yet. Because it starts at sundown tonight. <laughs> but when I get that craving and I think about that Starbucks coffee, I'm going to convert my thoughts to these 10 days of awe and use them to humble myself and reflect and repent. Who knows, maybe after the 10 days I won't like Starbucks coffee anymore. That would be great. I'd save a fortune. <laughs> But this should be a, a time of humbling and repentance and remind ourselves of these things and living with the expectation that Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And that we should be in a state of readiness looking forward to his return. And uh, that will lead me into my message for next week, said the Lord. Will the Ten virgins. Five were ready, five weren't. Amen? And that also is a, a, is a rapture parable. But, now don't raise your hand unless you mean it, but who's going to join me and Pastor Red in a fast? Doesn't have to be anything. Could be. It has to be something that you will miss. It has to be, it has to be a real sacrifice yes. for you. That could be cheesecake or french fries or whatever. But, or you can do a total fast. Nah. <laughs> I don't think anybody will, but fast from something. Yes. And, and again, not to change God, because that won't change him. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. But it might change you, especially when you use that time to reflect on your sins and your shortcomings and how far you fall from the perfect standard of God. And then it will humble you, uh, especially when you think about how great God is, that will humble you. You know, James said, humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God. And, and if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Yes. We go down, he goes up. Yes. He takes us up. Amen? Yes. And so it, it would be a good time for us, I think. I know it's a Jewish tradition. We don't have to practice it. We don't have to follow Jewish tradition. But all those things were done for our examples and as an admonition to us. Yeah. So we should learn something from them. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. Let's stand on our feet and let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you, God, for your wonderful written word. God, I pray this, well, not only this morning, but every morning, I pray that you would show me great and mighty things in your word. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come upon me every day, Lord, and you show me new things, show me new knowledge, give me new knowledge, Lord, revelation and a rhema word. And God, you have certainly been doing that lately because I'm beginning to see the word like I've never seen it before. And God, as you show me, I will share it with them, Lord, because your word is wonderful. You exalt your word above even all your name. Hallelujah. And God, your name is the greatest name 
in the earth, under the earth, above the earth, and in the heavens. There is no name anywhere in the world greater than your name, and yet you place the integrity of your word above that of your name. So your word is important. Your word is important to us, Lord. And we thank you and praise you for it as we study it, as we read it, as we learn things from it. And we recognize the value of Jesus Christ and we begin to esteem him more highly than we ever have before because he's worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise and he's worthy of our worship. So we thank you for that, Lord. We realize through the Old Testament examples of the sacrifice of innocent animals, they all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat. And Lord, the duties of the high priest that we studied this morning, we now realize the duties of our high priest who is ministering in the heavenly holy of holies and how he brought his blood into that most holy place and sprinkled the sides and the top of the mercy seat with his own blood. And he atoned for our sins once and for all and forever. God, we don't realize how awesome you are, and we should stand in awe of you because you are an awesome God. So we thank you for it, Lord. We ask you to touch these people today, meet every need in this place, and every need of those that are within the sound of my voice this morning. Touch them right now in the name of Jesus. Heal them. Meet their every need in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.